and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews, readings, and conversations with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Ria Tregabov, the author of Rue des Rosiers, which was a finalist for the 2020 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Ria is the author of many books, which span many genres. She writes fiction, poetry, and children's picture books. Rue des Rosiers is her second novel and recently won the Nancy Reichler Memorial Prize for Fiction. Rue des Rosiers is set in 1982 and centers around two women, Sarah and Layla. In the reading you'll hear in just a moment, Sarah, the protagonist, has arrived in Paris with her boyfriend Michael, who's been given the opportunity to work there for six weeks. While being set nearly 40 years ago, so much of what Rhea writes about in terms of racism and anti-Semitism is current. Rhea's writing is captivating, her characters are complex, and you can hear her poetic touch on nearly every sentence. Rhea starts our conversation with a reading from Rue des Rosiers. So this section of the book is called Metro, and Sarah has just arrived a day or two before in Paris. Metro. Sarah hasn't taken more than two steps out of their apartment building when she feels lost. Has to check her plan de Paris, the silly little blue booklet with detailed maps she's tucked into her purse. She needs to make sure she's got her bearings. No one can know this city without a map. Sure enough, there on the building at the corner is the little blue plaque with the street name that told her about the arrondissement number snug in the arc at the top. From St. Paul Station, she can take the one line all the way to Concord and then walk to the Madeleine. There's a stop right at the Madeleine, but changing lines at the bigger stations usually means crossing through a labyrinth of turns and stairways to reach the correct platform down grim passages with low arch ceilings. Abandon all hope. The first time she was in Paris, she was really scared of the Metro. She'd never been on a subway before. She still is a bit. First ride this visit. She hasn't gone far when she's waylaid by a buttery, sugary caramel that makes her realize she's hungry, despite the croissant with creme fraiche and strawberry jam she had for breakfast, her hummingbird metabolism kicking into gear. The smell is coming from a tiny crepe stand tucked into the crook of one of the buildings, barely enough room behind the griddle for the young man who's working it. What'll she have? Le fait fromage au jambon et fromage. Her mouth waters. Francois Miron is about to spill into Rue Saint-Antoine. Sarah can see the red rectangle with its metro marker just up ahead. Finishing off her crepe, she walks past an old-fashioned kitty carousel, rather forlorn-looking, draped in plastic song kids of any sort, then past one of those classic green newspaper kiosks with a fancy soft edge to its roofline and a little green dome 
It stands cluttered with postcards and cheap souvenirs. Beside the metro entrance, a few trees are trapped in little metal cages, lindens. Around each tree is a miserable looking square of exposed soil that's defended by a steel grate. A few weeds pop through the grate. Opportunists, beggars collecting spare droplets of water provided for the legitimate plants that the city approves of. Sarah starts down the grubby concrete steps of the entrance when she captures a suddenly familiar whiff of the dank, unbreathable air. She remembers this smell. Something overhead catches her eye, a dark scribble on the stone. Is it limestone? that frames three sides of the entrance, just below the green metal railings of the fence that encloses the stairs. The words stop her. The light of the day caught in them. Words in French she can't understand. She can't go past the second step, lets the annoyed crowds push by her. Three words, more au juif. Then the English comes to her, death to the Jews. She finds herself gripping the metal handrail, staring at the white tiles on the wall, the bright silver frame at the bottom, that flash of silver, what's it for? Maybe it's a gate that shuts when the metro closes after the last train, keeping what's not wanted out. She looks at the words again, looks around, no one else looks up. Maybe she's got it wrong, more au juif. Can it spell anything else? No. No, she's sure that's what it means. Every muscle in her body pulls itself tight. Someone bumps into her, a man in a dark coat goes by, his face sad. She lets go of the handrail. She has something she has to do, somewhere she's supposed to go. She takes the stairs down into the state caustic air of the metro. Thanks, Ria. I think um, maybe my first question for you is maybe like an introductory question, but I'm curious where uh, where the seed for this story started. Like you, in, you introduced Sarah in this reading, but we also get to know Sarah's sisters, Gail and uh, Rose, and of course, Layla is woven in there as well. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how the story started for you. Well, it's an interesting literary origin. Uh, uh, Marina Endicott is a writer whose work, a novelist whose work I adore, and uh, several years ago, she wrote a book called Little Shadows. And she said, this is a book about three sisters. And I'm one of three sisters. And I'm very interested in the dynamic of sisters. So I decided to write a book about three sisters. And I remember sitting in the audience. This was at the Vancouver Writers Festival and thinking, I'm one of three sisters. <laughs> I should write about sisters. And, and certainly that dynamic is really important to the book, how the sisters both support and undermine each other, the, the tensions and, and the love among them and their various paths as, you know, young women, they're all in their twenties at, in 1982 at a time when 
it might be surprising to consider, but really the options weren't quite as broad as they are now, almost 40 years later, even though it was a time of very articulated feminism. I don't think young women at that time had as many models of ways of being. So they both help and impede each other in, in finding a path that allows them to really be fully themselves. So that was one origin. The second was that I was living in Paris in 1982, in the summer of 1982, spring and summer. And in fact, living in the apartment that Sarah's living in, which is a five minute walk from uh, the corner of Rue des Rosiers, which is where uh, a terrorist attack happened on August 9th in 1982. Um, I was not present at that attack I could very easily have been. I had been planning on visiting English delicatessen where the attack took place. And so uh, that was one of the dynamics of the plot for me. Could you talk a little bit about Layla and Sarah and, and how those two perspectives became included in the book? Layla's voice comes into the book at first kind of threads. And I think the reader will be somewhat puzzled first person stream of consciousness and contrast to the third person, uh, slightly more objective uh, uh, narrator rest of the book. And she's a young Palestinian woman who, who, or her family is Palestinian, but she's grown up in a refugee camp in Lebanon. Um, and uh, she's in Paris as well, um, sort of escaping her past in, in Lebanon. Um, extremely difficult circumstances uh, where she's looking for work and has trouble finding work and there's a lot of bias against her because she's Palestinian, a lot of cultural bias against her. And um, Sarah and her family are Jewish and the attack on the delicatessen in Paris was an anti-Semitic attack and Leila herself has some pretty complex feelings about Jews Although she has met a Jew, she has understandably complex feelings about Jews. So I wanted these two narratives to, to intertwine and, and um, had a lot of fun having them. They're sometimes in the same place at the same time and they'll catch a glimpse of each other. And uh, sometimes they're in the same place at different times. And I'm hoping the reader will be concerned about how they will eventually, how and whether they will eventually meet. It was an int interesting as a reader because um, Layla, like you said, was introduced quite early in the book, but you don't really come to see how those two characters are connected until I think it's almost halfway through and and they and Sarah sees Layla, but you don't even really know that's who it is until you start get, putting the pieces together. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to know, Megan, did you find that irritating? <laughs> I never find stuff like that irritating. I love, I love when writers make the reader work a little bit for it. <laughs> oh, I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that. Chris, it would have been awkward for you to say anything different. Like, oh, that was really an irritating plot element. But I actually, um, putting her in as early as she is now, which is, you know, very early in the book, that was actually a late revision uh, based on a suggestion, not only of a number of very expert first readers for me, but also uh, my, my wonderful editor for uh, the book, the hired editor, uh, Warren Carew. He urged that her voice come in sooner. And then I had a lot of fun doing that so that you'd get a sense of her inner world, but not be perplexed uh, or 
be perplexed only in a positive way. So just sort of these little tiny snippets of what's going on in her head and what some of some sense of what her difficulties are. Mm-hmm. I think an interesting thread that came out between Layla and Sarah and many of the characters in the book actually is is kind of trauma and intergenerational trauma and how all the characters respond to that. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about about that theme in the book. Yes, um, for sure. That That's such an important theme. And, and um, so Layla has two sources of trauma she she comes from a very loving and supportive family but of course they're living in exile uh from palestine and they're suffering tremendously from that exile because their lives have been very rooted in landscape they're they're suffering on on a spiritual and and uh, cultural level and of course they're also suffering just in terms of they're quite successful at making ends meet but it's far from easy. And the other trauma is um, is uh, the reason, she, a traumatic event that happened to her specifically is the reason that she decided to leave her family. That was supported by her family just to, to get out away from that site of trauma. I'm trying not to give any spoilers <laughs> away here in, in that element of the plot. And with Sarah's family, uh, the family is Jewish. And although her parents were born uh, in Canada and thus didn't experience the war. They, they're of the generation who would have been either soldiers or, or, or um, you know, would have been, uh, if they'd been in occupied territory, would have, would have been probably murdered uh, at the time. Um, they haven't, they were born in Canada, so they escaped that, but they have other family members who were, and, uh, and I think, I mean, this is based on my own experience. My parents were born in Canada, as was I. It was my grandparents who came to Canada. But that whole generation felt a tremendous weight of the experience of the Holocaust. And I have Sarah, although Sarah's a bit younger than me, um, I have her also being very haunted by what it means to be a Jew. Um, very, She has a very complex, complicated relationship to her identity as Jewish um, and she struggles to try to understand what it means to be a post-Holocaust Jew and how that impacts her own sense of her own humanity when the experience of the Holocaust was so much of de- dehumanization and inhumanity. It's interesting to watch Sarah go through the journey of the book because she's really struggling for to find who she is um, both as a Jew but also as a young woman and and while she's faced with this tragedy in the book she it's it's just such an interesting transformation for her oh I'm glad you think that I'm I think Sarah like you know fairly large number of people she struggles with agency in her life she struggles with, you know, getting her hands on the steering wheel and, and actually driving her own life. And she's um, she's quite a taciturn person. I, I tried to write a lot of the first, you know, 50 pages of the book with her barely speaking, <laughs> which is a great contrast to me, as you may already have gathered. But, but that's part of her passivity is she's sort of a silent observer and, and uh there's a couple of incidents in her life as a young woman that that make her even more hesitant about acting. She's kind of in a, a moral paralysis 
as much as anything. She doesn't know what the good thing to do is. She, she, she understands bad actions, but she's not sure of how to take good actions. Uh, and so I hope she's not too irritating a protagonist. I, I can imagine but for some readers, they like want to shake her. But she w- does wind up being shaken. Um, and and uh, in Paris, uh, she winds up being almost shaken right out of her own life. And that those tremendously traumatic incidents, as the book progresses, uh, in fact, in some uh, empower her uh, towards the end. Again, oh, am I giving too much away, Megan? I don't think so. <laughs> I know we're both being very careful, tiptoeing around, not to give too much away. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. I wrote the book. I just felt compelled to write about that terrorist incident that I came so close to, but but wasn't involved in. Um, and when I started writing the book, it was back in 2012. It seemed like a long ago, you know, sort of really a distant past. And then as I was writing the book, the incidents of uh, Charlie Hebdo and then the Bataclan happened as I was writing it. And it was a very unsettling feeling um as if i had somehow magically made it happen which you know completely false but writers get funny ideas in their heads about agency and (laughs) magical thinking yeah i it was interesting too because as you mentioned the book is set in um in the early 80s but so much of of what we do see in the book are such current themes and i think at at one the the moment with marie claire and when they're out for lunch was was one of those moments where it was like i that conversation that's happening among those those women at lunch is one that i think we could here in a restaurant even now and I think that's what made the story so poignant is um, the conversations and the struggles that Sarah's having are things that we need to be mindful of even today. Yeah not enough has changed I mean so much has changed but certainly not enough has changed and Marie Claire is is based on a person I did meet in Paris and and uh, it's funny because I constructed that scene uh, where where uh, Marie Claire is making some relatively typical uh, anti-Semitic remarks, sort of soft anti-Semitism. And I think people in minor- who are, are in minorities or, or who are racialized are often find themselves in these positions where they're sort of, you know, I'm, I was to her mind, the good Jew, you know, uh, and so she could confess her disdain for unpleasant Jews to me, and I was expected to understand and support her point of view. And I think people will often find themselves in that position, and it's uh, it's very corrosive uh, and hard to deal with. And I wrote that scene, and I thought, oh, I must be exaggerating. And after I'd written it, I happened to find some old letters where I had detailed that conversation. And in fact, if anything, in my memory, I had soft pedaled it. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it, what was, one of the themes that I really um, found so interesting to read about was the around identity and um, that question that comes up quite a few times in the book, what is a Jew? And I wondered if you could talk about that question and and why you chose to weave it in there so many times. I think it's been fairly central 
central in my life. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a pretty devoted agnostic on my best days. So I'm not, uh, I'm not observant in any way. But I did grow up in a community of uh, uh, children of Holocaust survivors, uh, was sent to Hebrew school, Hebrew day school for six years in my childhood. And it just felt like there was this immense um, shadow over my childhood that defined being Jewish as um, being a victim, uh, as being hated. And I had to offer my own territory uh, to come up with a positive a definition that was true to me and my experience of the very, to me, recent history of the Holocaust, the very recent history of what it meant to be a Jew as both externally defined uh, and also my own internal definition of it. And that's without being within a framework of, of uh, any real religious belief on my part and certainly next to no religious observance. Um, my mom comes from a long line of atheist Jews and I love the way she referred to it as kitchen jewelry. So if there's a holiday that involves food, we celebrate it. But we're a little less keen on actually going to synagogue, although I do on occasion go to a very wonderful synagogue here in Vancouver. Another thing about Sarah that I was interested in was that she really seems to struggle with a feeling of guilt and and fairness, and she's trying to kind of live up to something, and she we see her many times in the book kind of keeping a tally and keeping score. Uh, what was going on there with, with that for Sarah? And we see it quite early with the penny, too, um, and it plays throughout the whole book. Yeah, yeah, she's she's struggles with with um, some compulsive uh, behaviors and some obsessive thoughts for sure, uh, and I think it's partly this moral paralysis that makes it very hard for her to make decisions uh, because she's so keenly aware of ethical considerations that she doesn't want to do harm and she's not quite so sure about how to do good. And it's it's partly the constraints around, you know, what was expected of a of a young woman growing up towards the end of the 1950s and the societal strictures around her her own agency. And then the particularities of really feeling so strongly the shadow of evil that the Holocaust represents. So she wants to behave ethically within that, but she's not really sure how. Yeah. The other thing that really seems to be on Sarah's mind, but also ex- seems to come up um, with Layla as well as this idea of, of home. And in Paris, she's inter- introduced to terroir. And uh, I found the two of those words together, like the connection of home, but also terroir, to be so interesting. And and that Sarah just seems to be, she seems to be seeking to be rooted, but she doesn't know how. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting contrast between Layla and Sarah. And uh, for me, uh, it was more of an imaginative leap, of course, on so many levels, but specifically on this idea of home uh, for Layla to to understand Layla, because her 
family had a, a beautiful little plot of land in Palestine that, you know, they had they had owned for generations and generations. And she hears stories of it and her culture is rooted in the land and the landscape and what they grew in the garden and the trees that were in their plot of land. And for Sarah, and, and I think for me, growing up as a diasporic Jew, uh, you know, you, you were sort of perched. <laughs> Wherever you were, you were kind of perched. And there was this profound dislocation. Now, of course, Layla and her family experienced that because they've been dislocated, but at least they know where home is. And I think Sarah's in on a perpetual quest to, to find something that feels like home. And that's part of her tentativeness in within her life um, that... Um, she grew up in Winnipeg, as did I. And although Winnipeg very much feels like home, she she knows that she can't really rest anywhere with security, or she believes that she can't really rest anywhere with security. Yeah. And it's so, and then there's the dynamic between her and Michael, of course, where he wants so much to be with her, and, and she does as well, but... The, there's this kind of barrier where she's just not able to to kind of make that commitment with him and put down those roots the way he would like. Yes, yeah. Uh, her, her resistance to actually engage with her own life is quite crippling when we first meet her. And, and I think readers will be worried for her that she'll just be, just be wobbling forever. <laughs> unable to really fully love, even though she has those inclinations. So she's, she, I think she's in a quite a precarious place when we first meet her. Yeah. In your reading, you, um, a, a hummingbird in, enters in, and I noticed that hummingbirds kind of come in and out, either, either metaphorically or literally. Uh, and I was curious about the use of the hummingbird in this book. Just as you said that, there was a hummingbird at my feeder. <laughs> Looking out the window from my office, and I have a feeder. Uh, and I am kind of fascinated by them. She is a very, I'm not a big person, but she's a really tiny person. And she is has a tremendous physical energy and tremendous physical stress. She's meant to be like five feet uh, tall and a, less than 100 pounds, not quite 100 pounds. And so she she thinks of herself as somewhat as a hummingbird. And one of the other characters in the book says that specifically about her a woman whose garden she's looking after in Toronto. And uh, it's a it's a metaphor. Oh, and then they they're very territorial. I don't know if you you have them in your life, Megan, but you know they they won't share feeders and stuff, and they're really nasty and. So the, the territoriality comes to play into that notion of terroir and, and the, you know, the fight for territory that is represented in the Palestinian and the Israeli conflict that, that is a, certainly a, a background, a, a historical background to what's going on in the book. Um, the invasion of Lebanon was happening in 1982, very, a real turning point in the history of, of the two nations. So the, yeah, the humming, well, the hummingbirds are in my real life and then they just put themselves in my book. <laughs> and it, I, it even wanted to be in the interview, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they, I get scolded severely if I don't keep that feeder full. It's, um, 
they've even buzzed me as I was putting it back up and they don't realize that, that, you know, if I fall over the edge of the balcony, when I'm putting it up, nobody will be there to fill the feeder. They just, uh, quite <laughs> stern. I wanted to ask about the ending without, I guess, giving away the ending, but this idea that the two stories become kind of a shared story. And I, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Cause I thought it was such a powerful ending to the book. Oh, sure, sure. Well, um, Layla was a challenging uh, character for me to write. Um, I'm I'm extremely fond of her. Um, she's a very wonderfully powerful person in some ways, but she is technically anti-Semitic, so she has never met a Jew. Um, and she has a very valid reason for resenting the loss of her of her country as a result of uh, the formation of the state of Israel and her parents are not hateful people, but they've told her this true story of how they've lost everything. And so as they move towards each other, Layla, we're worried that they're going to collide. Um, oh, gee, I'm dancing around, not giving away too much. And they're similar, they're doppelgangers for each other. So they're very similar in appearance. They're both tiny women, rather, you know, strong, uh, strong, tiny hummingbird women. And they keep, as I was saying before, they keep crossing paths, but they're moving towards a collision because um, Layla becomes peripherally, there's the possibility that she will be drawn into a terrorist group. And I was hoping that that would make sense to readers without them turning against Layla. I was hoping that that would make sense to uh, readers as an understandable response, if not a good response to her predicament. So they keep coming closer and closer to each other. And in the end, they do meet. Oh, I'm just dancing around saying too much. In the end, they do meet. And I think we have hope for the both of them. Thanks so much to Rhea for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. And if you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, we have a special holiday episode of the podcast with the wonderful Bill Richardson, whose book, I Saw Three Ships, was a finalist for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.